Well, greetings, brethren, and welcome to another Wednesday night Bible study. Hopefully I'm coming through loudly and clearly. Maybe uh, you can just confirm that for me in the chat. Uh, here we are, uh, the last Bible study before Passover. It's just amazing how time just continues. Uh, time marches on, and eventually uh, we will be here for the Lord's return, God willing. So let's uh, open with a word of prayer. Tonight we are uh, getting into Isaiah chapter 6. And I should have uh, just put that up for everybody here so we know, for the sake of the archive, uh, the chapter that we're covering today. So Isaiah chapter 6, we'll open with a word of prayer and then get into the study. Oh, Heavenly Father, we come before you as we always do, uh, with gratitude in our hearts and, and great expectation, Father, for you to uh, come through for us through the power of your Holy Spirit, that you would impart to us the, the wisdom and the knowledge and the understanding that is in your holy word. Uh, we thank you so much, Father, for this uh, prophet, Yeshayahu, who lived uh, thousands of years ago, uh, and yet he was such a great prophet, and, and his words today are so powerful and so meaningful and so relevant. We just thank you that we have access uh, to this scripture. We pray, God, you'll bless our study, bless those who are tuning in live with us and those who will access the archives. And we just pray, God, that we will navigate, that, that your word will be a lamp unto our feet, and that we will, able, we will be able to navigate our paths correctly in, in righteousness. Thank you, Father. Thank you for Jesus Christ. We ask in his name. Amen. So again, just looking for confirmation that you, you are hearing me loudly and clearly, clear sound. Thank you very much, Brother Lee and Brother Reg and Brother Posen. Acho, very, very nice. Okay, so we're um, up to Isaiah chapter 6. We are also going to have a treat tonight. Uh, Pastor Murray is going to join us after the study uh, so we can have a bit of Q&A. Uh, chapter 6 marks the end of the introduction to the scroll of Isaiah. So chapters 1 to 6 really represent an introduction to the text. And so we'll, after finishing the introduction, Pastor Murray will join us. We'll be open to answer any questions that you have about what we've covered so far. So let me go ahead and share the text. And we are in Isaiah chapter six. However, I just, like I always do, just like to have a bit of context. So we'll go back uh, just a little bit, just, just a little bit to uh, pick up the context. Chapter one, verse one, let's, let's pick up this verse first, that this has been a vision or this, the scroll's concern it's, it's a vision that Isaiah had, the, the vision of Isaiah, the son of Amoz, which he saw concerning Yehuda, Judah, and Yerushalayim, Jerusalem, in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, Hezekiah, kings of Judah. So this uh, Davidic, Davidic dynasty uh, coming down from King David, and for quite a long time, there's a period of time here, it could be 60, might be 80 years uh, of Isaiah's career as a prophet. So he outlived many, many kings, was one son after the next, grandson, and, and was there prophesying against them. Uh, uh, and he had, and, and supporting them, uh, for example, with Hezekiah, we'll see later. Um, but he had access to these kings. And so he, it, it's apparent that he was of noble birth and had access at any time to the courtyard. So his prophecy or his vision concerning Judah and Jerusalem was during the days of these kings. 
And then immediately after declaring the vision, God speaks. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth. So this is where we were when we started this study, that God is calling the heavens and the earth, and this is a call back to the Torah, when Moses called the heavens and the earth to witness the, the covenant that Israel was entering into with God. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for Jehovah has spoken. He's spoken. The creator of the universe has spoken. What has he said? Sons have I reared and brought up. God himself raised children, but they have rebelled against me. So this is, this is what the vision is all about. That God has personally raised sons, and they've rebelled against him. And then just skipping ahead to chapter 3 and verse 14, Jehovah enters into judgment with the elders and the princes of his people. There is a definite controversy and conflict between God and his covenant community. And God is now entering into judgment with the leaders. It is you, you leaders of my people, who have devoured the vineyard and the spoil of the poor is in your houses. This is amazing. These are God's own people, the covenant community, and it is the leaders that are ravishing the poor. And, you know, as we're reading this text, I've been kind of struggling with this a little bit because as we've been reading these uh, chapters, I keep reminding you and I keep reminding me that this is about Judah and Jerusalem because it's so easy as we're reading all of this and woe unto them that call the light dark and the dark light and evil good and good evil and they have uh, babes ruling over them and women and children are ruling over them and, and there's this corruption that we read about. It, it just reads like the news of our society today. And, and yet it is specifically about Judah and Jerusalem. Now, I will say uh, part of this in terms of trying to reconcile this, especially as I'm looking right now, south of the border and what's going on there, it says, um, there's another scripture where he says that you, you trample my people in their faces. Uh, and here you've devoured the vineyard. God's Israel is, is God's vineyard and you've devoured it. You're supposed to be husbands with stewards but instead you're taking it all for yourself. And the spoil of the poor is in your houses. So, you, so the little bit that the poor has, you're taking it away from them to enrich yourself. That's exactly what we're seeing today. And you see with this whole, well, hopefully we've figured out this border controversy by now where the previous administration was very, very adamant in putting up a border and, and ensuring that illegal immigration was not happening. And in so doing, was shutting down drug trafficking, was shutting down human trafficking, was shutting down the trafficking of children for sexual purposes and slavery. All of that business dried up under the previous administration. And now in the oh, open borders and everybody's welcome and surge the border, the, these businesses, which are trillion dollar businesses, this, this is big business. And, and in fact, human trafficking is more profitable than drug trafficking. And so this is now biz back, back to business. And, and this is horrible. And, and these are the governments that are allowing this. And, and why do they do this? And, and these um, stimulus packages where they just print money and give it all away. And like, who, who is it really enriching? Because the poor seem to keep getting poorer. And so it does seem like America fit, does fit in this. And I think in terms of this being specifically these prophecies, 
uh, about Judah and Jerusalem, we do have to acknowledge this, that as far as the American government goes, there are 37 Jewish members of Congress. And this article goes on to say here that in a mostly Christian Congress, Jews are the largest minority. So we have to see that the, the, these, uh, this, these descendants of Judah uh, are very influential. There's uh, very few Jews in the world, actually. Uh, and yet they are very influential. They win significant Nobel Peace Prizes. You look at, the, say, the Muslim population, which is, what, 1.8 billion? You look at the Jewish population, I think it's maybe something like 12 or 14 million people, period. And yet the impact that they have. And you look at the major philosophies that are driving this world today, and many of them are coming from Jewish intellectuals. Uh, and, and you look at the government, and again, the, the, in a mostly Christian nation, uh, it is Jews that are occupying the, um, the, the biggest minority in the, in the Congress. So these scriptures that we're reading, they are geographic in terms of the, the geographic focus is Jerusalem. But I don't think that when it says Judah, that that is necessarily or exclusively geographic. I think God knows where the descendants of Judah are. And so if the descendants of Judah are very influential in the decisions of the American government and, and things like opening up the borders so that babies can be trafficked, uh, then these judgments clearly would extend and reach America as well. So... We see here that the Jehovah enters into judgments, judgment with the elders of, and princes of his people. It is you who have devoured the vineyard. And we read last week the, the, the song of Isaiah to his beloved about the vineyard. The spoil of the poor, they have nothing. And yet you're taking away the little they have. It's in your house. You're enriching yourself on the backs of the poor. And that's what we're seeing. That's what we're seeing. All of this printing of trillions of dollars is just going to drive inflation. It's going to crash the economy. And I used to think when the economy crashes, everybody suffers. And I realized that is just so untrue. When the economy crashes, people get richer. The elite get richer. The, the, the wealth concentrates in the hands of the elite. And yes, the middle class gets wiped out and the poor get poorer. And that's where we're heading. We're heading into a feudal society. So get ready. Uh, you know, buckle up, tighten, tighten the buckle on your belt and, and get ready. And certainly don't, don't, don't be extending yourself with debt. Debt is slavery. And, and that, that is going to be the first people who are going to suffer, the people who are overextended. So this is a terrible situation. We are speaking of Jerusalem. We're speaking of Judah. This was fulfilled anciently with Nebuchadnezzar. But it's a cycle. It's a pattern. And it's a repeating pattern. And Christ said he came to fill all these prophecies to the full. So this is really setting up now for the, the great tribulation that these prophecies will be fulfilled fully now that Christ has come and, and fulfilled his mission. So we begin now in Isaiah chapter 6 and verse 1. So remember he was in these kings and the first king was Uzziah. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw Adonai, sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. 
So this was an amazing vision. I think we, we always think of the visionaries as, you know, John and Daniel getting these visions, but Isaiah was among them. He also received this great vision, and he received it in the year that Uzziah died. And this is, again, part of the introduction of the ministry of Isaiah, the, prophet, the, the prophetic career of Isaiah. And it's interesting that Uzziah is a king, and he's receiving these prophecies and these scriptures during the reigns of these kings. And yet, during the death, the year of the death of the first king, Isaiah gets a vision of the true king of Israel and the true king that will sit on David's throne. He sees this 2020, he sees it very, very clear. He sees Adonai sitting on a throne, high and lifted up. And remember, the, the problem, the root cause of the fault of Judah and Jerusalem is pride. They really think they're something. And now Isaiah sees this vision of Yehovah high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. This is a glorious vision that he sees. Now, it's interesting that he gets this vision in the year King Uzziah dies. Let's examine how the king died, because this was a mostly righteous king. Second Chronicles 26 and verse 11. Said, and and uh, he reigned over Judah during a very prosperous time. So very strong economy. Moreover, Uzziah had an army of soldiers. So that's interesting. He, he's a, a king over a host. God is the Lord of hosts, the Lord of armies. But here Uzziah has a host of soldiers. He had an army of soldiers fit for war. And this is what a strong economy does. When you have a strong economy, you can have a strong military. And you can protect your economy and protect your people. When you allow the economy to be unraveled, then your military becomes unraveled as well, and your enemies whet their appetite. And we're living in a time where we, we all depend, Jerusalem depends, and certainly here in Canada, we depend on a strong America. And the previous administration was trying to rebuild the military after it had been depleted for, pre, for, by the previous administrations before it trying to rebuild it, trying to rebuild the economy, strengthen the economy. That would have been wonderful for not just for America, but for Jerusalem and also for us here in Canada and the Western world. But that's gone. That's gone. We're now witnessing the U.S. economy in freefall. It's in freefall. And with it, the strength of the military. And, and you see China flexing its muscles now, coming on American soil and flexing its muscles and embarrassing the current administration publicly and basically saying we have no respect for you you have no authority over us this is a harbinger of of the difficult times ahead and and the problem with us is we tend to look at the future as an extension of the past and we cannot break with the continuity we, we, we cannot see a discontinuous future where it's it's nothing like the past well the future our future our immediate future will be nothing like the past at least nothing like the immediate past. America is unraveling, and with it, the Western world. And with it, the hedge around Jerusalem. So here, he had a strong economy, had a strong military, fit for war, in divisions according to the numbers in the muster made by Jael, Jael the secretary of Maaseah. I'm sorry, I like to read from uh, King James. I just realized I'm in... Um, Revised Standard. Let me just pop to King James. 
the, so um, the hand of Jael, the scribe, and Maasiah, the ruler, under the hand of Hananiah, one of the king's captains. The whole number of the chief of the fathers of the mighty men of valor were 2,600, and under their hand was an army, 300,000 and 7,500, that made war with mighty power. This is what you can do when you have a strong economy, to help the king against the enemy. So he's really successful, strong economy, strong military. And Uzziah prepared for them throughout all the host shields and spears and helmets and habergeons and bows and slings to cast stones. So this is just military might that he's preparing for the host. And he made in Jerusalem engines invented by cunning men, innovation, to be on the towers and upon the bulwarks to shoot arrows with great stones withal. So think military, the latest military advancements. And his name spread far abroad. A very successful king over a very successful nation and economy. For he was marvelously helped until he was strong. So, you know, nothing like Solomon, but just think of a very, very powerful king, highly respected, highly regarded, with the latest military might and able to defend itself against all its enemies. And he, the king, grows strong. He's known all over, very strong in reputation. But when he was strong, what is it? Pride? His heart was lifted up to his destruction. For he transgressed against Jehovah, his God, and went into the temple of Jehovah to burn incense upon the altar of incense. So we know from Saul that this is not the role for the king. The king and the, the role of the king and the role of the priests are separate. But he is now very full of himself and sees himself beyond how he should and decides that he's going to burn incense in the temple upon the altar. And Azariah, the priest, went in after him. And with him, 80 priests of Jehovah that were valiant men. So this is a serious conflict. They say, yes, you're a king, and yes, you're a mighty king, but this goes beyond the pale. And they went in there to challenge him. And they withstood Uzziah, the king, and said unto him, it appertains not unto you, Uzziah, to burn incense unto Jehovah, but to the priests of the sons of Ahran that are consecrated to burn incense. So this is, this is a holy work. You're not to do this. Go get out of the sanctuary, for you have trespassed. Neither shall it be for your honor from Jehovah uh, uh, Elohim. Then Uzziah was angry. So, so in this conflict, he was furious. He said, I'm the king. Then Uzziah was angry and had a censer in his hand to burn incense. And while he was angry with the priest, so he wants to perform this priestly function. They are confronting him. He's angry with them. He still wants to perform the incense, the burning of the incense. And while he was angry with the priests, the leprosy even rose up in his forehead before the priests in the house of Jehovah from beside the incense altar. So right there on the spot, he became a leper right in front of the 80 priests. And Azariah, and Azariah, the chief priests, and all the priests looked upon him. And behold, 
he was leprous in his forehead. And they thrust him out from there like, whoa, you're a leper in the house of God? They thrust him out from there, yes. He himself hasted also to go out because Jehovah had smitten him. So he realized now he had totally overstepped. Even though he was this great king, he went too far. And as he realized now he's become leprous, he realized he has to get out. So they're, they're pushing him out, and he himself is running out. You can imagine the scene. And Uzziah, the king, was a leper until the day of his death. So God cursed him, and he remained under that curse until he died. And in the year that he died, that's when Isaiah received this vision. He was a leper until the day of his death and dwelt in a separate house, being a leper. So he can't mix with people. For he was cut off from the house of Jehovah, and Jotham, his son, was over the king's house, judging the people of the land. So the dynasty now goes from Uzziah to his son, Jotham. Now the rest of the acts of, the, of Uzziah, first and last, did Isaiah the prophet, the son of, the son of Amos, write. So there's some other document that Isaiah wrote about all the acts of this king, but we don't have access to that document. So Isaiah did write this other document as well. So Isaiah slept with his fathers, and they buried him with his fathers in the field of the burial, which belonged to the kings. For they said, he is a leper, and Jotham his son reigned in his stead. And that whole thing about being a leper in the Torah, Numbers 5-2, command the children of Israel that they put out of the camp every leper, and every one that has an issue and whosoever is defiled by the dead. So that's why he had to be put out and, and live in a separate, uh, even though he's the king, he's now been humiliated and he is a leper and he died a leper. And then we come to Isaiah 6.1, in the year that King Uzziah died and he was high, the king was high and lifted up and thought he was really something, he was knocked down and then Isaiah gets this vision. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw Adonai sitting upon a throne high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. Above it stood the seraphim. Each one had six wings. With two of the wings, he covered his face. And with two, he covered his feet. And with two, he did fly. So you could imagine this, these, these beings, maybe it's two of them, um, and they have six wings. And you can see them covering their face, covering their feet, but they can also fly, but there's a special two wings for flying. And so he sees this vision. And then one cried to the other and said, Holy, holy, holy is Yehovah Tezvah, the, the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. So this is the true king of Israel. This is the true king to sit on David's throne. These other kings have overstepped. They are to be husbandmen over the vineyard, but instead they're allowing the vineyard to be corrupted. And here now Isaiah gets the truth and gets the story straight. And this, this Lord is holy, holy, holy. And he's the Lord of hosts. Now he says... And the posts of the door moved at the voice of him that cried. So one is crying to the other. And the voice that he has shakes the door, the posts of the door. And the house was filled with smoke. 
So, so there's Uzziah wanting to take the incense. Like, this is, you're not fit for that. And yet in heaven, we see these seraphim worshiping Yehovah. And, and the, the house is filled with this incense. Then said I, woe is me. So Isaiah comes to this. So he, he sees this beautiful vision. And then as he's processing the vision, he suddenly comes to this realization. He's cursed. He is, he's going to perish. And he knows exactly why. Then said I, woe is me, or I am cursed. I'm going to perish, for I am undone. Why? Because I'm a man of unclean lips. Isaiah knows what's come out of his mouth. Here, here these seraphim are praising the Lord, holy, holy, holy. And, and, and the, the earth is filled with his glory. And Isaiah's on earth, and I'm sure he would have loved to praise God, but how can he praise God with his lips that have spoken unrighteous things? I'm a man of unclean lips. And not only that, I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. And this is sort of the, the root of sin, because out of the mouth, the heart speaks. Uh, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So I, Isaiah sees very, very clearly the situation now, not only on earth, but specifically in Jerusalem, and specifically contrasting his, himself and his people with God. Because he's, he's an unclean person, he's with unclean people, and his eyes have seen the king, the Yehovah of hosts. And just this term again, the, the Lord of hosts, what does it mean? It, I think it has two meanings, two levels of meaning. In, Ex in Exodus 12, 41, during this for original Passover, it came to pass at the end of 430 years, even the same day it came to pass, and Pastor Murray spoke on this extensively on Sabbath, that all the hosts of Yehovah went out from the land of Egypt. So Israel represents this great and mighty army that God let out of, led out of Egypt as the Lord of hosts during the first Exodus. And when he returns, he's returning for a second Exodus, which will be so great, we will never speak about the first Exodus again. The first Exodus will pale into insignificance. So God is again going to be the Lord of hosts. All the hosts of Israel, he will lead out of captivity. So that's one level. But then level two is when he comes, he's coming as the Lord of hosts. In Revelation 19 and verse 13, and he was clothed with the vesture dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies, the hosts, which were in heaven, so there's hosts in heaven, followed him upon white horses, clothed in fine linen, white and clean. And we know that when he returns, we will rise up to meet him in the air and join this great army. And out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should smite the nations. God is a God of war. And he's the Lord of armies. And when he returns, he's going to empower Judah to fight against her enemies. So God is a God of war, a man of war, and a God of armies. And he shall rule the nations with a rod of iron. And he treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. So he, this is what Isaiah sees. He's the Lord of hosts. Now, he's in this situation 
where he realizes the full extent of God's glory and the depth of not only his, but his people's depravity in front of this glorious God. Uzziah had no idea. He just thinks he can waltz into the temple and take God for granted. God, uh, Isaiah, or God shows Isaiah the extent of his glory. And Isaiah is worried now. This is like, what can I do? Verse 6. Then flew one of the seraphim unto me, having a live coal in his hand. So he's taken from the altar a coal, which he had taken with the tongs from off the altar. And he laid it upon my mouth. So he, he burned Isaiah's mouth and said, Lo, this has touched your lips, and your iniquity is taken away, and your sin purged. So this is extremely uh, hopeful, that Isaiah, realizing his depravity before God, is, is, it's immediately resolved by God himself. The angel comes over and removes the iniquity so that he can be in God's holy presence. Now, that's what happened to Isaiah, but Isaiah said it's not just him, all of his people are the same. And this is where in chapter 1 and verse 18, the, the same hope that Isaiah just experienced, God extends the same hope to his people. He says, these are, he says the whole head is sick, from head to toe, the whole nation is corrupt. And yet he says in verse 18 of chapter 1, to Judah and Jerusalem, Come now and let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. And we just get some visibility into what this process is going to look like. There will be a mechanism by which their sin can be purged and they can stand before God, just as Isaiah experienced. Back to chapter 6. So he's been purged of this iniquity. And then in verse 8, also, so while all of this is happening, he says, also, I heard the voice of Adonai saying, whom shall I send? And who will go for us? Then said I, here I am, send me. So there was some council in heaven, some discussion, I think, no doubt about Jerusalem and about the depravity of Jerusalem. And, you know, who shall we send? And Isaiah says, well, well I'm here. I'm right here. Send me. And he said, okay, go, and what's the message? Tell this people, Judah and Jerusalem, hear you indeed, but understand not, and see you indeed, but perceive not. This is a terrible curse. So, so Isaiah has this vision of who the true king of Judah is. And how holy he is. And how corrupt he and his people are. And he's worried he's going to perish. Instead, he's forgiven and purged. And then he hears them having this conversation. And, and Adonai asking, well, who shall we send? Who will go for us? And Isaiah says, well, well I'm right here. I've been purged. I'm here. I'm right. I'll, I'll go. I'll do it. And he doesn't yet know what the message is. But the message is, go and curse these people. These children of mine, go and curse them. And what's the curse? Tell these, go and tell these people, hear you indeed, but don't understand. See, but don't perceive. 
Do this in a way that you make the heart of this people fat and make their ears heavy <clears throat> and shut their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears. We would not want that. Why wouldn't we want that? Because God is not a liar. And God entered into covenant with them. And the covenant said, if you, do, if you disobey me in these ways, then I will curse you in these ways. And they disobeyed him in the very ways that he said. And therefore, as the holy God that he is, he is obligated to activate the curse clauses. And that's what this is doing. This is ensuring, this is saying you've gone too far. The same way that Uzziah went too far. And he, he must have repented and cried out and, no, you die a leper. You went too far. And these people have gone too far. And so the, the curse clauses will be activated so that God can fulfill everything that he has said. Lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and convert and be healed. We would not want that, would we? Especially if it's going to be premature and superficial. Now, when Christ was on earth, he exactly, precisely quoted this scripture. He called them, he called to mind this scripture in Matthew 13 and verse 2. And this is why you, you can't have this New Testament, Old Testament. And, and you know, I, I remember when I was young, I had a Bible that had the New Testament and the book of Proverbs and Psalms in it, and nothing to do with the Old Testament, so called Old Testament. Uh, and that's how many Christians read the Bible. We can't read it that way. It's one continuous narrative. And so you cannot understand what Christ was doing on earth if you don't understand Isaiah, if you don't understand Torah, if you don't understand the prophets and the writings. It all flows together as one narrative. So here now Christ comes to earth, and he says here in verse 2 of Matthew 13, And great multitudes were gathered together unto him, so that he went into a ship and sat, and the whole multitude stood on the shore, like, they're, they're here. Here he is, our Messiah. We, let's follow him. This is the great teacher. And there are the great, great multitudes. Now, if you follow most Christians, you're going to believe that what a great opportunity to, to, to convert the masses and bring them to salvation. Is that what Christ did? Let's see. And he spoke many things unto them. So there they are. They want to be taught by him. He taught them many things in parables. Saying... Behold, a sower went forth to sow, and then the parable begins. And then he ends this teaching with, who has ears to hear? Let him hear. Okay, sounds like, okay, he's speaking in parables so he can make his meaning plain and give greater illustration, and then hopefully everybody hears. That's not what's happening. He's speaking in parables so that they cannot hear. They, they can hear physically, but they can't understand what he's saying. And then he looks at this whole multitude of Jews and says, if you have ears, hear. And then this puzzles the Jews that are with him, his disciples. Well, hey, we're all Jews here. How, how come you're not speaking to them plainly? Verse 10, and the disciples came and said unto him, why do you speak to them, our fellow Jews, in parables? He answered and said unto them, because it's been given unto you, you Jews, to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. But to those Jews, it's not given. 
wow, it's just not given to them. They have, they have no right, they have no access to it. Therefore, speak high to them in parables, because they seeing, they're looking at me, all these multitudes are looking at me, and they seeing, see not. And they're all listening to me, and hearing, they hear not. Neither do they understand. And in them, look at the crowds, look at all these crowds, this whole multitude following me around, look at them closely. Because in them is fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah, we just read it in Isaiah 6, look at these crowds, in them is fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah, which says, by hearing you shall hear, but shall not understand. And seeing you shall see, but shall not perceive. For this people's heart is waxed gross, and their ears are dull of hearing, and their eyes they have closed, lest at any time they should see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and should understand with their heart, and should be converted, and I should heal them. God forbid. That's what you say. Like, we can't have that situation now, can we? Because if we had that situation, then the promises and the agreement that God entered into them with the covenant, God would not be fulfilling the covenant. He promised them, this is what's going to happen to you if you disobey me in these ways. And not only did they disobey him in these ways, they disobeyed him in those ways to the extreme. They took it to the extreme. And so God has God who speaks and his word never goes unfulfilled. He's got to complete this process. And the process is actually designed to drive them to a level of repentance that is deep, whole, and entire. Deep, whole, and entire. But they have to go through the washing machine. And without the rough and tumble of the washing machine, the repentance will be superficial and, and skin deep at best. So, so Christ is ensuring that they do not have access to the mysteries of the kingdom. But these first fruits, who ultimately will be uh, instrumental in the redemption of Judah, these understand the mysteries. But he says here, but blessed are your eyes. There's a difference. Your eyes are blessed for they see and your ears for they hear. And that's why whoever has ears to hear, let him hear. So the disciples had ears to hear and eyes to see. So this teaching was for them, but not for the rest of the Jews. So this situation then, where Christ is on earth, and the disciples, have, the disciples understand, but the Jews, the, the multitudes, have no idea. Well, it was around in Isaiah's day, which was the 8th century BC. So 800 years later, when Christ was on earth, the situation was still there still happening. So Isaiah wanted to know in his day, how long are these people going to be under this curse? Where I'm going to be preaching the truth, but they'll have no idea what I'm talking about. How long? Then said I, Lord, how long? And he answered, until. So it's not forever, but it is going to be until the cities, that is the cities of Judah, be wasted without inhabitant. Remember, uh, Israel is divorced. So the northern tribes were a disaster from the beginning, from Jeroboam and every king after him. Uh, they, they had no right to the throne. They set up this false worship system in Samaria. Uh, they were a write-off from the beginning and, and very evil. 
And so they were divorced and separated from God. Judah, the kings of Judah, saw what happened in the north, and they were worse. But they were the legitimate line of David. And God remained in covenant with them despite their wickedness. But he's now going to work them in a way that they do come back from their depravity. So this is now to do with the southern tribes and the, the nation of Judah. And so until the cities of Judah be wasted without inhabitant, that is a covenant curse, which they activated. And the houses without man, another covenant curse, which they've activated. And the land be utterly desolate. That is a covenant curse. God promised them, I'm holy, the land is holy, you must be holy. If you are not going to be holy, you must be ejected out of the land. And so this is a covenant curse. So until this happens, that, until this happens, they're cursed in this deafness and blindness. When this happens, the deafness and the blindness will finally be lifted so that they can come to true and deep repentance. And, and, and so in doing that, God is fulfilling faithfully all the terms and conditions of the covenant with Moses, but also in allowing them to come out of this and truly repent, he's fulfilling the covenant with Abraham. So God is doing both. Yes, Abraham's seed will bless all the families of the earth. And yes, the, this, this seed of evildoers, this, this, these corrupt people will absolutely be destroyed according exactly and precisely according to the covenant. Both are true because God is faithful to his word and faithful to his covenants. So this is until. And Jehovah has removed men far away. That's a curse of the covenant. And there be a great forsaking in the midst of the land, a great turning away, a great abandonment of, of, of the covenant in the land. This is all part of the covenant curses that have been activated. In fact, we'll just pick up one verse of these curses. In verse 63 of Deuteronomy 28, <clears throat> and it shall come to pass that as Jehovah rejoiced over you to do you good. This is what Moses said, okay, you're going to go and God will bless you, but I can see already you're going to disobey him. And all these curses that I've read out to you, you're going to activate them. <clears throat> It shall come to pass that as Jehovah rejoiced over you to do you good and to multiply you, so Jehovah will rejoice over you to destroy you. Let that sink in. Same way he rejoiced over you to do you good, in the same way Jehovah will rejoice over you to destroy you and to bring you to nothing and you shall be plucked from off the land. What are you doing on the land? This is holy land, and you serve a holy God. And because of your depravity, you're going to activate this clause. You'll be plucked from off the land where you go to possess it. This has to be fulfilled, and it will be. And it will be fulfilled fully with the great tribulation. So Matthew 24 and verse 3 Christ is going to exactly remind them of this covenant agreement. And as he sat upon the Mount of Olives, and the disciples came unto him privately, saying, Tell us, 
when shall these things be and what shall be the sign of your coming and the end of the world? And remember, it's been given to them to understand the mysteries. So he's going to share with them the answer to these questions. The rest of the Jews, they have no idea. In verse 13, but he that shall endure unto the end, that's who will be saved. So it's going to be a tumultuous time, a tumultuous time. And there's going to be a great forsaking in the land. There's going to be a great apostasy. But those who hold on to the end, those are the ones that shall be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom that I've been teaching you, that, that we have been going over and over in these mysteries of the kingdom, this, this good news of the kingdom of Israel shall be preached in all the world. The whole world is going to know about this. Even though we're here in this uh, small city called Jerusalem, and, and most of the world has no idea of the significance of Jerusalem, before I return, the whole world will know just how significant Jerusalem is as the center of the coming kingdom. And they'll understand what this kingdom is. They may not agree with it. They may try to resist it, but they're going to hear it as a witness that they cannot say they did not hear. So this gospel, this good news of this kingdom that I've been preaching, this same gospel shall be preached in all the world for a witness unto all nations, the goyim, and then shall the end come. So all nations are going to hear this, even though all nations are uh, in agreement to destroy Judah. Somebody's going to be preaching this message, not only to Judah, but to all these nations. And in this great conflict against Jerusalem and against Judah, everybody's going to have heard the gospel. Then he goes on to say, when you therefore shall see the abomination of desolation, the abomination that makes desolate, he's referring to the covenant curse clause. He's referring to the prophecy of Isaiah. He's referring to the same prophecy which Daniel saw. It's all connected. When you shall therefore see the abomination that makes Jerusalem desolate, spoken of by Daniel the prophet. When you see that stand in the holy place, whoso reads, let him understand. So go back and read Daniel and make sure you understand it. And there's going to be a great deception. And, and people are going to believe that God has forsaken Jerusalem. They're going to believe that God has forsaken Judah. But don't you be deceived. Make sure you read what Daniel wrote and you understand it. And you understand how this fits into the plan of God and how this fits in the narrative and how I'm still obligated to Abraham to fulfill the promises to Abraham through these people. So despite the curse clauses that they have come under, I'm still going to come through for Abraham with these same people. So whoso reads, make sure you understand then let them which be in Judea flee into the mountains. Because the curse, the focal point of the curse, is Judah and Jerusalem. So if you're a Jew living in Jerusalem at this time, run for your life. Because Satan's work is to completely wipe you out through the Goyim, through the Gentiles. But God's work is to ensure that there's a remnant to fulfill the covenant to Abraham. 
uh, in Luke, Luke writes, and that Christ said, when you shall see Jerusalem surrounded with armies, so all the nations of the world are going to agree, the Jews need to be taken out. And when you see the armies surround Jerusalem, then know that the curse that Isaiah spoke about is near. And don't be deceived, because the vision to Isaiah was this curse of deafness and blindness is until this desolation. Once this desolation takes place, the curse of blindness and deafness will be lifted. So on the contrary, rather than the abomination of desolation resulting in the complete destruction and wiping out of the Jewish people, it's actually going to be the opposite. It's going to lead to the full redemption of the Jewish people. In Matthew 23 and verse 38, he says to them, after cursing Jerusalem, he tells them, behold, your house is left unto you desolate. This is the covenant curse. You brought it upon yourself and it's coming. Is that the end of the story? It's not the end of the story. Immediately after telling them about this abomination that will make desolate, he says, for I say unto you, you will not see me again until you shall say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. <laughs> this desolation is going to lead to a change of heart. This desolation is going to lead to a realization that Yeshua is truly their savior, is truly their Messiah, that they have no other hope, that there's nothing else that they can turn to. So, so clearly America is gone and the protection that America has extended, America's tremendous military, I think we have no idea of the military might and strength of, of America. It's unprecedented. There's never been anything like it in, in, on planet earth in the history of mankind. It's gone, it's gone. And there's no protection for these people from anywhere. Their technology, their intellect, nothing. Finally, this remnant realizes Yeshua, Yeshua, Yeshua alone is their savior. And that brings us back now to the end of chapter six and the end of the introduction of the scroll of Isaiah. And he says, after all of this desolation, and this curse will finally be lifted in the desolation, he says, but yet in it, in the city of Jerusalem, shall be a tenth. So there will be a remnant, and it shall return, and shall be eaten, and shall be destroyed. So this is a complete wiping out of these people. Think of Zechariah 14. As a teal tree, or the Hebrew is a teberinth tree, and as an oak whose stump is in them, when they cast their leaves or, or the, the trees have been felled, so the holy seed shall be the stump thereof. It's a bit of a strange prophecy, but I believe what he's saying here is exactly what God has said from the beginning that he shall be glorified in this people and not in another people. So they're going to be led to all of this. And that stump that remains, it's like on, they were on the verge of going out. This is an existential crisis. And they're on the verge of going out of existence. 
when it says, unless those days be shortened, no flesh should be saved alive. It's not, it's not that no human flesh would be saved alive. It's that no Jewish flesh would be saved alive. That the whole focus is to wipe out the Jewish people. And when they're on the verge of extinction, that's when Christ will return. Unless those days were shortened, no Jewish flesh would be saved alive. And so he comes and he saves. And then we see Zechariah 12. He gives them the power to fight back. And he gives them the power of, of King David to fight back. And so the holy seed will come out of the stump. That, that little bit that's left, that almost goes completely out of existence, that has come to the full realization, as Isaiah did, of their depravity and their need to be purged by God. And they say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And now we can begin to establish the good news of the, the, the reestablishment of the kingdom of Israel. And, and, and the, 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 the unique place in, in, in man's history and future of this tribe of people. And then the rest of the tribes of Israel will be joined together with Judah to become one stick. And everything that God has spoken, everything that he has covenanted, both the blessings and the curse and the ultimate fulfillment of the promise to Abraham, all of it will have been fulfilled. And there will not be a single word that God has spoken that has not been fulfilled. And then these same, this same Jewish remnant will be God's witnesses. They will be Jehovah's witnesses. And as, as God gathers all the goyim around, these people will be able to say, this scripture is true. We have lived every bit of it. And this is why this God is holy and why you must serve him. So that is the end of the introduction of uh, Isaiah, the, the scroll of Isaiah, chapters 1 to 6. And then beginning next week, we now get into the actual text of the scroll. Uh, Pastor Murray is going to be available uh, now for us to, uh, to join us. And uh, any questions that you have, any comments, any thoughts, uh, please share them. We don't have a direct feed from Facebook, but we'll be monitoring that. We'll be monitoring the website. We do have a direct feed through the YouTube channel. So any comments there, we'll be able to show those. Let me just uh, go ahead and bring in Pastor Murray. Pastor Murray, how are you? Good evening, Pastor Adrian. How are you? Great. Great to see you. Thanks so much always for uh, taking the time to spend time with us and uh, to be available for the, uh, for the Q&A. Thanks so much. I appreciate the invite. And uh, we do have the, uh, I do have the uh, YouTube and the uh, church, online.church uh, up and monitoring that. Great. Are you able to monitor the Facebook? Is it? Are we? Are we broadcasting on Facebook? Do you know? I don't. I don't have. I'm not uh, okay. able. Let me. Let me check. Uh, so I'll do the. I'll check Facebook. Um, did you want to? While I'm just checking this, uh, brother, did you want to make any comments or or share any thoughts? Sure. Actually, uh, interesting. Uh, going into Matthew 23 and 24, appropriate. Actually, obviously, with uh, touching Isaiah 6, but uh, not sure anyone is. Uh, uh, aware of this, I'm sure, I'm sure there are, but uh, the whole um, Christ, uh, so yesterday was uh, the 10th day of the first month when uh, Christ came into Jerusalem riding on the donkey. And that's when um, they select the lamb, right? Correct. Yeah. Interestingly yeah. enough, if you follow the text in Matthew, Matthew 21, after, after that uh, riding in, uh, verse 18, Matthew 21, verse 18, begins by saying now in the morning 
which brings us to the day we just exited in Matthew 21. And if you follow the text, so he talks there about the cursing of the fig tree. He's got a few uh, parables, the two sons, the landowner, marriage feast. Let me, um, let me just bring this up. Yeah, yeah bring, bring it up. In Matthew, Matthew 21. Verse 18. It'll be interesting. I hope it'll be interesting for everyone to see yeah. what Christ yeah. did on the day we just came out of, the day that okay. is just ended. Let me just bring that up for you. There's uh, Matthew 21 and verse 18. Um, do, do you want to go ahead and read that? Sure, yes. Yeah. So now in the morning, as he returned to the city, he was hungry. So that's that begins the, the next day following uh, the coming out, uh, coming into Jerusalem on the donkey. And then we don't have time to read all that happened today because, quite frankly, it goes to the end of chapter 25 and the parable okay. of the ten virgins. Wow. And all, all of that, the, his dressing down of the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, um, his, his uh, prelude to Matthew 24, which you've talked about in Matthew 23 with all of the woes, the, uh, all of that prophecy in Matthew 24 that then leads into the parable of the ten virgins and the parable of the talents, all of that took place on wow. the day that just ended. So wow. two days, two, two days, uh, three days before Passover, three days before his death, we, we go to these scriptures a lot. It's very interesting yeah. to me that this took place uh, as he was uh, preparing for his death. So this was what was on his mind and what he needed to convey to the Jews. Uh, That's really, really fascinating. So everything from 21 to 25 is Correct. in this period. Very cool. Correct. Because then if you go to, uh, if you just want to go to chapter 26, verse 1, We then get uh, the new time frame there. Uh, uh, in verse two, you know that after two days is the Passover. So that be that's that would be tomorrow, or what the day that is starting now. So when we wake up in the morning, he comes into verse chapter twenty-six, and tomorrow that's when he gets anointed by Mary. Uh, so a lot. Uh, he was uh, he got a lot of work done on the eleventh. That's amazing, and, and amazing that we're studying this right now. Mm -hmm. That just really makes it come to life. So pr pretty fascinating, actually. It really is, really is. Thank you for bringing that out. Very, very good. Um, did you have any thoughts or, or comments um, from, from the chats? And actually, um, I did have a thought. I, I had one comment I wanted to make. Um, last <clears> week, I, I had made the comment, and it was a bit of a harsh comment, that you know we see these police officers roughing up uh, women and, and treating them like you know thugs, and yet, we see actual thugs and rapists and, and, and gang members, you know, ruthless people, and they won't touch them. They, they stand down. And I made the comment, um, or they use the label, uh, prostitutes with pistols. Very harsh. And of course, I'm not talking about all police officers. We just saw uh, yesterday the news in Boulder, Colorado, uh, with this police officer, father of seven children, a pillar in the community, uh, ruthlessly gunned down by an Islamist. Uh, so clearly we have good police officers and we need these police officers. But I think we have to understand this. The human interface between the beast system and the rest of humanity will be a police force. That is, it has no morals. In, in a world where good is evil and evil is good, and, and um, just depending on who's paying my paycheck, I'll do whatever you say. This is a form of prostitution. And we need to understand that we are going to come face to face with these people. 
that, that uh, we're normalizing criminal behavior and we are criminalizing normal behavior. So criminals will walk free and people who are just trying to raise a family and worship God, this will be considered a crime. And we will be coming face to face with these people. And we need to understand uniform, notwithstanding, badge, notwithstanding, they have sold themselves out. And they're, they're not operating according to a moral compass or even an oath to serve and protect their country, the citizens of the country. They have gone globalist. And whatever the global elite says, that's what they do, even if they know it's wrong. And so the scripture says we have to be prepared to give a reason for the hope that lies within us. So as you're being arrested and carted off to jail for nothing more than you want to protect your family, you want to teach your children about Christ, this will become a crime. And police officers will enforce your persecution. And we need to be ready to, we need to understand what we're looking at. So, so that's what I mean by that comment. Yeah, um, we do have a couple of questions I'd like to get to, but just to, uh, I would like to comment on what, what you uh, add to your comments, which I definitely appreciate. Um, and that's why, and I certainly don't want to rehash this too much here, but that's why it's important uh, to not get dragged into this critical race theory. Uh, right because, because if we go back last week to that very unfortunate situation in Atlanta, uh, that has been uh, tagged and uh, tagged as, as anti, an anti-Asian uh, mm -hmm. act. Mm -hmm. uh, um, what we miss out on, is, and when we just blanket, when we blanket label everything with, with that unfortunate race tag, we miss out on the fact that this wasn't a spa that, that, was hap that this happened in. This was a seedy massage parlor. I've been to a spa with my wife. I go, there's a brother that I go to who is a, is a, a massage therapist. That wasn't what this place was. Right. Right. And it was with, it was with underage uh, Asian, uh, foreign Asian girls who had been brought into, in through one of the, the busiest airport in the United States. So easy to get lost there with this um, uh, pedophilia and underage stuff getting, uh, and then this, this gentleman who committed this heinous act and again, it was a heinous murder that he committed, but he was so disturbed by his, his uh, sexual addiction um, that, that it wasn't an Asian thing that he was after. It was his inability to process his, his personal addiction issues with this, not a spa, but a, an underage Asian um, seedy massage parlor. Uh, but when we blanket everything with, with race, we avoid all of this evil that is inflicting in being in our country and unable to protect these unfortunate young ladies who have been, who are victims in this whole thing, not just victims of murder, victims of the people that have brought them in. So again, don't want to go too deep, but just, and then we have the Boulder situation yesterday with this uh, uh, Muslim uh, fellow that, that took out uh, um, uh, 10 people, including this, this police officer. So definitely, definitely uh, the, the beginnings of the curse clauses for sure in, in the yeah. United States. And, and the beginning of iniquity abounding. And I think I'll just comment a little bit on this. It's a great, great insight, uh, Pastor Murray. Uh, and now the borders of America are opened up. So this whole human trafficking, child trafficking, back to business, boys. You know, our, our bank accounts were running dry. Good thing the borders are open. We can fatten our bank accounts again on the backs of these poor children. Now, uh, what you're saying is so profound, and a lot of people are not seeing this. You know, when, when Christ spoke in parables, 
And the disciples were curious, why are you doing this? And the answer was to keep them blind. In other words, understanding the narrative would unlock their eyes because we see through narrative. Something can be happening right in front of you as it was with the Jews in Christ's day. And you, don't, you, don't, you can't see it, you're blind. Why are you blind? Because you don't have the narrative. He was giving the disciples the narrative so that they could see. Conversely, conversely, if the devil gives us his narrative, he blinds us. So if Christians are buying into critical race theory, which ultimately is rooted in Karl Marx, who was, if not the son of Satan, one of his sons, one of his most prized possessions, this, this man, Karl Marx, in his mind was completely demonic. And critical race theory ultimately comes out of Car the mind of Karl Marx and this whole conflict between the oppressed and the oppressor, which is all made up in order to uh, destroy mankind. If the narrative is coming from Satan and Christians are accepting this, then we are being blinded because we will no longer be able to see through the scriptural narrative. And that's what's happening today. As soon as this happens, the narrative goes out, uh, white supremacy, white racism, even though it's inaccurate. Although when this Muslim killed the people in Boulder, Colorado, again, the narrative goes out, white supremacy. Then we find out, oh no, it's not, that's not the case. He's actually from Syria. He's actually connected to ISIS and it's an Islamist, a Mohammedan. Now, now the story is, well, let's not give him any glory by saying his name. Let, let's bury his name so that people are not connecting the dots and we are blinding people. And so as China, the Communist Party, releases this virus that destroys the global economy, instead of us being furious and demanding that China be brought to account, we're not. China gets a pass. We're furious about uh, Donald Trump, and we've got to get rid of him. And and every all of you know we're, we're we're upset when the media tells us to be upset, and we're quiet when the media tells us to be quiet. So Muslims can come in just as they have done in Europe, and now the borders are open in America, and they can come in and they can start and just in the UK start doing all this slaughtering and raping. We've got nothing to say. We'll only be upset when the media gives us the narrative and tells us when to be upset. And so we've, we've got to stick to the scriptural narrative or we will be blinded. Yeah, and it's uh, certainly um, uh, incumbent upon the members of the body of Christ not to get uh, caught up in all of that. Right on, right on. We have to be clear and be ready to give a reason for the hope that lies within us so that we can pass on this narrative. Yeah, and interesting that, that uh, again, we talk about context, 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 that verse in First Peter uh, we pull that out a lot, but if you read the whole context of First Peter, it has to do with uh, being able to stand up in the face of persecution. Not, it, there's a lesson, obviously, to being able to answer for your faith at any time, but the, but right the context on. of the scripture is in persecution. Um, we, it is a Q&A, so um, we do have a couple of questions. Um, uh, so I'll, I'll give you the first one here that came in from on YouTube from uh, John uh, Saplinski. Uh, is it okay to use grape juice in place of wine for Passover? Uh, so how would you answer that? I'll let, maybe let you take that one. Sure. Um, so, um, I mean, our, uh, me personally, um, 
we should be using wine. Uh, I think I think as our our uh, our church, our organization certainly leaves it up to the individual. Uh, and uh, it is, you know, the, the scriptures do talk about, you know, if it's if it's not faith, it is sin. Certainly, something that that each of the individual must work through on his own. Uh, do do understand that you know people have come out of alcohol problems, and that is something that one must work through faithfully with with God. It's certainly not something that um, uh, the church would come down and say you must, you must. However, me personally, uh, I don't see grape juice used in the Bible, and I am uh, I am aware of uh, uh, several folks that uh, through repentance and the healing that takes place that uh, they have been uh, sober after an, after uh, many, many, many years, uh, able to, to uh, faithfully take the wine at Passover and not have it affect anything. So that, that's, a, that's a growth process and uh, certainly would uh, encourage anyone who uh, would uh, be avoiding wine due to a past that they, they worked through that faithfully. And then certainly uh, that, that's, kind of what, that's kind of what I would say. I'm curious what you would say. Uh, I would agree with you 100%. The, the only thing that I would add, to, just to enhance what you've said, is uh, in 1 Corinthians 11, um, Paul is very specific to the Corinthian church to follow him precisely, the way that he followed Christ precisely. So, so there's a precise process that Christ went through that the early church followed. And then Paul was, by revelation, also shown that precise process. And then he showed it to his followers. And said, "You follow me precisely, as I follow Christ." So I think I'm in alignment with you that if it's not in the scriptures, we want to be very careful uh, not to deviate from scripture. At the same time, I think there there needs to be understanding and empathy for those who might have been struggling with uh, a past that could be problematic. Uh, at the same time, there's there's faith, and you know, just you know, we're not talking about drinking a whole glass of wine here. Right. Right. Uh, another question. Um, when the seraphim say, and this is uh, now referring to Isaiah 6, verse 3, uh, when the seraphim say holy three times, does this prove the Trinity doctrine? And if not, what is the significance of repeating this word three times? Okay, this is a great question. Let me just uh, call up the scripture here. Uh, and one cried unto another and said, Holy, holy, holy is Jehovah of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. So we certainly know that it does not support the Trinity doctrine, although I'm sure that the Trinitarians would take a scripture like this to try to support it. Uh, but there's nothing, we have to take the whole council of scripture where there's nothing in scripture at all to support Trinitarianism. This is something that came out of the minds of men. Who was the um, apostolic father that came up with that Trinity uh, doctrine? Uh, oh, uh, it's slipping my mind, Adrian. Yeah, uh, it's slipping my mind as well. But I think the, the significance to me of holy, holy, holy um, is the fact that um, the Lord is referred to as him who is and was and is to come. And the very name Yehovah contains that sentiment that God was, is, and will be. That's all contained in the word Yehovah. So I, th I think that that state of eternity, uh, past eternal, eternal, future eternal, and again, self-existent, I, I think that's what's captured 
in this uh, holy, holy, holy. And I'm sure it goes even far beyond that. I'm sure that, um, that this notion, uh, kadosh, of being separate uh, and, and for holy purpose, separated for holy purpose, that Isaiah is coming to realize just how uh, separate and holy Yehovah is and how purposeful he is. So this is what comes to my mind. I don't know, Pastor Murray, if you would add to that. Yeah, I have a uh, so is Tertullian. Um, that, that's, uh, it. that's it. That's yeah. it. Yeah. And uh, one commentary that I read earlier today. Interesting, we had that the question was asked. Um, that and you've been studying uh, Hebrew, so maybe I'll throw this by you to see if you've come across this before. Is that in the Hebrew culture, when something was mentioned twice, it really conveyed the the mostness of it so and when you say holy holy it would be most holy uh mm -hmm. to say it three times give it gives it a level beyond uh beyond human capability so when we're talking about about uh the father here uh, being holy 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 he is he is holy be, uh, to a level that we simply can't attain in this life um i love that that's a great uh Great understanding. I have not yet come to that uh, understanding, but I have seen whenever something is repeated in the Bible, it's it's like a bold. It's, you know, they didn't have bold and italics, right? Uh, so right. it's certainly an emphasis. So to repeat something three times, it does take it to a much much higher level. Very good. Uh, we've got another a, one here. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. I was just going to say I see one here from um, uh, YouTube uh, from Brother Lee. Could Revelation 18.13 refer to human trafficking the souls of men? Let's take a look at that. And that was the one I was going to highlight. So okay, we can... great. Yep. So it reads here, uh, well, let's just go back to verse 12. <clears throat> the merchant, so this is, let's just get the context. For her sins have reached unto heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. Reward her even as she rewarded you, and double unto her double according to her works in the cup which she has filled, fill to her double. How much she has glorified herself and lived deliciously, so much torment and sorrow give her. For she says in her heart, I sit a queen and am no widow and shall see no sorrow. Oh, I went all the way back. Let me just jump down here. So there's merchandise. The merchants of the earth will weep over her. No man buys her merchandise anymore. The merchandise of gold and silver, and then and cinnamon and odors and ointments frankincense and wine and oil and fine flour and wheat and beasts and sheep and horses and chariots and slaves and souls of men. And the question that we have here from our brother, let's call this up here, is uh, could it be referring to human trafficking, the souls of men? Uh, thoughts on that, Pastor Murray? Uh, that's uh, something I hadn't considered. Um... Just looking at looking at the Greek word psyche, um, so so the Greek word really refers to the the uh, uh, the psyche of man, so that that which makes him like the conscience and the the, the um, which which you know sets him apart from from animals. I, I don't think so, but um, um, it could be. You know, uh, we are we become slaves to 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 sin, and you know. Um, um, I don't. I don't think it would refer to that, but it could be. I, don't uh, I, I think it could be. Um, certainly, we know that uh, all of these curses are culminating in the curse of the covenant people, and they are going to be enslaved and taken captive and, and shipped out of the land and all over the earth. And God will ultimately gather them back. 
uh, but they are going to be sold into slavery. And ultimately, that's where we're heading. Um, you know, I, again, people just do not understand the importance of a robust economy. And the previous administration, that's what they were trying to do, is to restore the American economy. Um, but no, we didn't want that. We're, 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 we want people who are going to shut it down. And when we shut down the economy and what Marxism is all about, and Islam as well, these two very strong economic systems, they are about enslavement. In the Islamic economy, uh, Muslims don't work. The, the kafir, the kafirun, the, the people who do not believe in Allah, they, they, they are the slaves. And so Muhammad could have wiped out all the Jews and the Christians, but he needed, he needed slaves. And so there's a whole system, economic system set up so that Muslims don't have to work. And the kafirun do all the, the slave work. And they are truly human slaves. And, and there's a hostility specifically towards the Jews. And so all of these um, Middle Eastern nations that surround Jerusalem and Judah, when they go in, they will be, apart from slaughtering, they'll also be taking slaves because their economy depends on it. Uh, Marxism is no different. Marxism is slavery. And it's a very fascinating system because the very people who will become enslaved are the people who fight for it. So we've, we've pivoted from economic Marxism, classical Marxism, to cultural Marxism. And, and foolish people who fall for rhetoric are, are, are buying into this postmodern neo-Marxist philosophy that says, oh yes, you know, social justice, and we've got to fight for social justice. And to do that, we must tear down our economy. And, and in the process, we must impoverish ourselves. So all of this, you know, uh, social justice for all and, and equality for all, somehow it always ends up in the slaughter of human souls to the tens of millions. It's never ended up any other way. And the impoverishment of human souls and the slavery of human souls. So we have really three economic systems in play. Capitalism or free market, which is being wiped out being replaced by both Marxist economy and Islamic economy. And both of these economies are built upon slavery and human trafficking. So I, I would say, you know, the future is here. It's just not evenly distributed. And I think we will see global worldwide slavery. And the, the shame of it is many Christians unwittingly will have supported its arrival and the development of this slavery system. Yeah, um, great point. Uh, you know, as we read that, you know, it does say the body and souls and that souls means mind. So there, there's there's any number of ways that the adversary preys on the bodies and minds of, of human beings just to keep them enslaved. Ultimately, it's in, as, as you've talked about before, it's, it's in, in, uh, enslavement to him. Um, and um, certainly um, uh, human trafficking is, yeah. is, is, the the whole, wave, is the wave of the future for sure. Exactly. And, and all of this, if you begin, you know, um, just beginning in verse 11, mm -hmm. this is all economy. This is all about economy and, and the traffic of goods, the exchanging of goods and economy. And included in this economy, uh, I guess in the, in the Hebrew would say nefesh, uh, the, the nefesh, the, the, these people are enslaved and they're, they're, they, human beings become part of the economic system and the trafficking of humans in the same way you would traffic gold and silver and, and cinnamon and commodities, humans have become a commodity. This is where we're heading. When you leave 
the Judeo-Christian system, which honors the human being made in the image and likeness of God and with, the, with, with inalienable rights to freedom of choice as a human, a dignified human made in God's image, when you depart from this, then anything that comes after that, I'm sorry, but you deserve it. You brought it upon yourself. How could you fall for Karl Marx? If you study this man's life and compare it to Christ, or Muhammad, and study his life and compare it to Christ, how could you support these men and, and the imaginations of their mind and what comes out of it when you have Christ and Torah? So once you depart from Christ and Torah and the honor of human beings made in the image and likeness of God, then human beings become commodities to be used and abused. Yeah, and you know, uh, as you're speaking there, it's drawing, drawing me into the writings of uh, the Apostle Paul and who uh, drives off of the Torah, even talking about the, the interaction of, of landowners and, and those who are, uh, in the biblical terms, it was called slavery, but it certainly wasn't slavery as we know slavery to, today. Right. It was really the, the um, um, how the economy worked. The economy out. of the day, yeah. Yeah. Um, and as you said, there were there were godly ways to for a, an owner and a uh, one who worked for an owner to interact. And um, um, when we leave those Jude those Judeo Christian principles, we we see what we're in the middle of. Exactly. And this system, when you read this system here, there will be a police force that enforces this. This system cannot stand without a police force. And you're going to find men with integrity are going to retire from the police. They're going to say, I can't do this. This is, this is not right. And men who are just uh, capricious, who are ambitious, who are maybe even a bit psychotic, they will love being putting on the uniform and enforcing this sort of, you know, these nefarious ways. Mm -hmm. So we need to be ready. We need to be ready. And I'm just, I'm just afraid, Pastor Murray, I really am. I'm, 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 I'm concerned that the Christians among us who are fighting to make this world a better place, it says that their hearts and minds are attached to this world. And when it blows up in their face, the depth of disappointment will be uh, unbearable. But I think if we realize this world is gone, this world is so evil. And when, when Isaiah stood before God, he says, I'm done, I'm undone. Like, what do I do? I come from a filthy people and I myself am filthy. That's the realization of Isaiah. And I think if we don't have that, if we're like King Uzziah and we think that this world is great and we're great and there really is no distinction between the things that are holy and the things that aren't, I just don't know, I don't, I don't know. Uh, there's a separation between the body of the Lord, which is holy, and everybody else. And if we as Christians are going to be fighting for everybody else with no distinction and fighting to try to make this world a better place, when it blows up in our faces, what are, what are we going to hold on to then? What were we fighting for? And, uh, you know, I think it's uh, interesting that Paul... Uh, in Colossians 2, verse 8, which we've spoken about before, calls that type of philosophy empty deceit. Right on. Um, and and warns, warns the body not to be deceived through this world's philosophies, which he then uh, likens to empty deceit. Uh, right. And, and we, can see, we can see how they use uh, Christian principles or Christian uh, rhetoric 
to yes. try to stop you. Exactly. Uh, exactly. What would Jesus? What would Jesus do? Yeah, you know? it's it's so clever, and this whole kind of Marxian philosophy of equality for everybody. It can sound so Christian if you're not careful. And what Christ said: Do not be deceived. And in order for them not to be deceived, he gave them the narrative. Mm -hmm. This is the narrative. And as long as you stick to this narrative, which is rooted in Torah, you won't be deceived. But if you leave the narrative, then other narratives are going to come and you're going to get hijacked by those narratives. Right, right. And I, that's the purposes of uh, the line by line study, uh, you know, getting understanding the, the scriptures from front to back and if it uh, if something doesn't look like it lines up, then let's let's figure it out and let's study and see see where we don't understand how it doesn't fit. Right on, right on. Right. When when Satan attacked Christ, he rebuffed him with scripture, yeah. and that's what we're going to need. Very very we're good. Up on, uh, I don't see any other questions, brother. And uh, we are coming up on nine o'clock. It's uh, um, been a, a pleasure joining you, and uh, likewise, uh, wish you and everyone out there a blessed most blessed passover season every every year it's an honor and a privilege to be able to keep these days and uh wish uh to you pastor adrian and everyone there a most meaningful passover and festival of unleavened bread yeah likewise to you and to everybody out there these are very very serious times very unstable times but we have the rock we have the stability mm -hmm. of the rock and then this passover is everything about establishing establishing ourselves in the truth of christ thank you so much and thank you. God bless. Thanks, everybody. Jesus is Lord. Amen. Amen.